direct from the city that lives by night. This is Thomas DJ, author of the Shadow Legion books, and you're listening to the Quarterbin Podcast. This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarterbin. In every episode of this podcast, I will summarize, criticize, discuss, and review some issues from my comic book collection, which many episodes I will select kind of at random. Any books from my comic book collection are eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for them. Were the issues worth 25 cents? Were they bargains at 25 cents? Or were they still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 93rd episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we're beginning our five-episode deep dive into the Vertigo Vortex. In this installment, we're looking at Animal Man 61 and 63 from the Vertigo line of DC Comics, cover dated July and September 1993. But first, a little bit of feedback mostly about the weird, but also about Moon Knight. But first, yes, I am on the slightly getting better end of a allergy and sinus event. So I know my voice is a little bit off for this episode. But I thought that given the adult and mature content of Vertigo books, that this deeper, richer voice might be appropriate. Where was I? Oh, back to feedback. New listener, Glenn Anderson, expressed his regret over his vote. Sort of. I'm sorry I didn't vote for Moon Knight for your Quarterbin episodes where you reviewed The Weird. There was no real decision to be made there. The Weird is a personal fave. It's really quite touching, and I'm glad you enjoyed the series. The Great Kansan, Greg Arujo, reported that he had recently read some Moon Knight issues and reported that he found them, quote, pleasantly generic which I thought was actually a pretty fair description of Moon Knight. He said they were the epitome of lazy Sunday afternoon comics. Nothing spectacular, but okay between loads of laundry. Again, a fair description of Moon Knight. Greg later tweeted out, as he often does, what is next in his random comic reading pile, and it was a range of Uncle Scrooge comics, to which I replied, they're not Moon Knight, but they look okay, I suppose. And Greg tweeted back, And now suddenly I have a vision of what Scrooge would look like, drawn by Bill Sinkevich. To which Dr. Ange had to butt in with, Do you know what Scrooge has in common with the Sinkevich family? They both have bills. Makes you wonder how that guy gets to prescribe actual meds to actual patients. Dr. Ange did make up for that a few days later with this tweet. Just saw the weird three and four pop up on my feed. Hooray. And yes, that did make up for the terrible pun. Greg also pointed out that the weird appeared in a few issues of Starlin's Mystery in Space series from 2007. That was a Captain Comet book and I was Joe Crawford 
said that he thought he had that trade somewhere in his to read pile. Back to new listener Glenn Anderson. He wrote in between the two episodes of The Weird. When you read the letter from Bernie's wife, I was near tears, even though I had already read it when the statement was released. Even though I had already read it, I read it when the statement was released. Looking forward to episode 92. I hope you enjoyed that one too, Glenn. Darren Sutherland wrote in not so much about the episodes, but the story I told about waiting to get Jim Starlin's signature and my regret and not taking issues of the weird for him. That's such a terrible feeling, and I immediately know how you felt, Darren said. I will confess to the stupidest mistake I made, which was having a book to get signed by both the writer and artist who were attending the same con. I did remember to take the book and went through the lines for both, but somehow got home with only the writer's signature on the book and not the artist. I still don't know where that happened. Ugh. Well, hopefully I can remedy that sometime in the future, and hopefully you can too, Darren. Well, whoever that unnamed artist was, if they're ever within, I don't know, 300 to 400 miles of Darren and Ruth, I have no doubt that that book will eventually get signed. Laurel, a.k.a. Mountain Flower, said that the weird seemed, well, weird was amused by your coverage, especially your interpretation of his voice, which, parenthetically, I would have no chance of doing right now. (laughs) There's no way your potential coverage of Moon Knight could have topped that. Okay, Laurel, kind words, so I'll let the diss to Moon Knight slide for now. Episode 92 was shared and retweeted by the Longbox Crusade, Coffee and Comics, Noel Thingval from the Masters of Carpentry, Ed Moore from Teal Productions, Mark from I'm the Gun, the Nexus of All Realities, Cullen from the Worst Comics Podcast Ever, and I was Joe Crawford. Thanks to everybody for all that support. Which makes it time to jump headlong into the Vertigo Vortex. Our issues for today are the first and last issues of the three-part storyline, Tooth and Claw. And if you're going to look at two parts of a three-part story, then the first and the last are the best ones to go with. And I'm going to look at these one at a time instead of running them together like we did with the weird. So, Animal Man 61 at a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired this book at a super-duper 87% discount. The cover of issue 61 by Brian Bolland shows an up-close-and-personal drawing of a lobster, which would be eerie enough, but Bolland amps up the creep factor by having the lobster hold, in one of its giant claws, an eyeball. The image is suitably vertiginous. The story, Tooth and Claw, Part 1, Seasickness, was written by Jamie Delano with art by Steve Pugh and Tatiana Wood. We start with Walt Isaacs, Fishing in Malachite Bay. Just one more cast, and then he'll call it quits. It's been quiet all day, until a tug on his line grows more and more intense. 
The blood pounds in his head like the surf as he slides his hand down the leader and grabs something hard. Something that grabs him back. Walt has reeled in a number of lobsters over his life as a fisherman, but he's never seen the like of these before. The lobsters appear to have some kind of malicious intent, and he has a vague idea that he should run. But before he can, they swarm and eat him alive. Meanwhile, the Baker family is caught in traffic on their way to vacation in Malachite Bay. The family is Buddy Baker, a.k.a. Animal Man, his ginger wife, Ellen, and the kids, Cliff and Maxine. The kids are maybe eh, 12 and 5, something like that, I'd guess. Buddy is irritable and restless in the car. He can't get off the topic of air pollution or animal rights and his other related concerns. His wife tries to talk him down, but he tells her, you can't take a vacation from environmental degradation. Ellen was hoping that the family vacation would get her away from his rants, like this one, so the family could maybe experience some kind of normalcy. They pull off the road at a rest stop, but Buddy can't calm down. Cliff wants to just catch some frogs, but his dad does not approve, and Buddy is disgusted to see another family at the rest stop just dump garbage out in the grass. Maybe he's car sick. Maybe he's just people sick. Without warning, Buddy growls like a rabid dog and chases the family away, leaping onto the hood of their car and beating at the roof with his fists. Ellen is mortified, not for the first or last time, but it's not just Buddy going nuts. A bunch of birds have attacked Cliff, and Maxine claims that a pack of woodchucks attacked her in the girls' room. Rather than investigate or further linger, the Bakers decide to get back on the road. We then meet Annie Cassidy, an artist who lives near Malachite Bay with her daughter Lucy. For some reason she can't explain, she started painting a lobster recently. The Bakers have rented a cabin down in the bay below the Cassidy's without realizing that the bay is so polluted that swimming counts as high-risk behavior. Lucy tells her mom that Walt Isaacs disappeared at the beach the day before. Annie is strangely unsympathetic, commenting that maybe the fish finally got to snack on him for a change. She takes a hike up Indian Head Cliff, leaving her daughter Lucy alone. The Bakers are bummed out by the condition of their vacation cabin, but Ellen is happy enough to be close to the ocean. All the bakers are excited to swim, and they change into their suits. Buddy suggests that he and Ellen do a little skinny dipping, but she's still worried about his odd behavior and wants to know why he attacked that family back at the rest stop. He admits that whatever it was, it affected all of the animals. It was a feeling of strong negativity towards humans and their pollution. He tries to lift their spirits by dragging her to the beach for a swim, but when they get there, they're disgusted by how disgusting the beach is. Lucy appears, explaining that the water in Malachite Bay has been contaminated by chemical runoff from a plant upstream. Buddy, Maxine, and Ellen decide to go for a boat ride out in the ocean to get further from the polluted waters Cliff decides to stay behind with Lucy 
for whom he is clearly smitten. Maxine points that out to Buddy, who hadn't noticed. Wow, I guess he must have grown up a lot while he was away. Annie, the artist, is up on the cliff watching all this happen, reflecting on how her daughter's future is at stake, from the radiation, the PCBs, the greenhouse gases. She's tried drink, drugs, and other tools to calm the raging pain in her mind. She enters an old sort of cave ruin nearby, hoping to use its natural stillness and the rhythmic ebb and flow of the sea far below as a, a means of relaxation. She's obviously feeling some of the same rage that Buddy and the animals experienced earlier. While out in their boat, Maxine notices some dolphins swing by. Ellen comments on how beautiful and graceful they are and elegant. But as they approach the bakers, Maxine senses trouble. Mommy, mommy, the dolphins are turning mean. They're going to get us. And in the dramatic final splash page, a pod of dolphins demolish the baker's boat. End of issue 61. Let me start the analysis section here with a little Animal Man history. The character was created by writer Dave Wood and artist Carmine Infantino. First appeared in Strange Adventures 180, September 1965 cover date. He adopted the name Animal Man in issue 190 as a result of being in proximity to an exploding extraterrestrial spaceship. Buddy acquired the ability to temporarily borrow the ability of animals, such as flight of a bird or the proportional strength of an ant. It's a simple idea, and maybe that's why it took so long to catch on, because Animal Man was a minor character, D-list perhaps, for his first two decades, making only five non-consecutive appearances in Strange Adventures, followed by two appearances in Wonder Woman, two in Action, and two in DC Comics Presents. Those 11 stories represent the entirety of his pre-crisis appearances. Now, this title, this series, is best known for the run by writer Grant Morrison, constituting the first 26 issues. Original penciler Chaz Truog stayed on the series until 32. And almost all of the series, writers and artists of this volume of Animal Man were part of the British invasion. Jamie Delano took over the writing chores after issue 50 and wrote the series through 79. Under Delano and artist Steve Pugh, the series took on a more horror influence sort of feel and the Suggested for Mature Readers label appeared on the cover. I had not read any of the issues in this volume of the book before reading these two. But this issue had all of the things I expected. It had the family drama that I want from these characters. In terms of families, or at least married couples in comics, I love the Dibneys. I love the Stranges. Vision and Scarlet Witch. These are all characters we've covered here on the Quarterbin Podcast. But it seems to me that the Bakers are the couple who's consistently portrayed in the most realistic way in terms of a married couple. 
And all of those interactions are here. The flirting and the fighting. How the kids relate to each other and to their folks. It just seems so right on, so realistic, if such a word is appropriate in describing a comic book. And it had the environmental and animal rights talk that I'd expect from an Animal Man book. And there seemed to be consequences arising from those concerns of buddies. This had the bizarreness, the weirdness that I'd expect from a Vertigo book. Not straight horror, traditional horror, but a sense of creeping dread. The sense that something is definitely not right here. That is what's happening here. And I like this small cast of characters. At this point, it's just two new characters, the mom and the daughter. Maybe more people get added to the story as the arc goes on, maybe not. But in general, I like when stories seem small, dealing with a small cast of characters, making the stakes more personal than a standard comic book, the end of the world and all of reality is at stake, sort of plotting that we seem to get constantly from every other superhero book. But this doesn't mean that those stakes are any less important. And it definitely has a dramatic ending based on the name of the baker's son and the spot overlooking the beach. I will try to not use the word cliffhanger. Kudos to the lettering, by the way, for not letting me confuse the character of Cliff with the geographic formation of a cliff, because both words are used here regularly in this issue. But uh, I managed never to get them confused. So let's go with... This is a boat crasher of a netting. So, as my buddy Paul Spataro from Back to the Bins would ask, when you read part one of a storyline, does this make me want to read part two? And it does. It definitely does. Unfortunately, I don't have part two. But I do have part three. And we'll talk about that right after this. Hi everyone, I'm Paul Matthew Carr, and I'd like to introduce you to a brand new podcast all about the craft and the process of writing. It's called Word After Word, and each month I'll be joined by Professor David Hicks to discuss the skills and methods needed to be a great writer. Using examples from novels, short stories and poetry, as well as TV and film, we'll dissect passages, beautiful scenes and characters, and investigate the process writers have employed in order to create their great work. Along the way, we'll be joined by special guests, best-selling authors, poets, as well as up-and-coming writers to get their advice and learn the habits that make them successful at what they do. So join us, Paul Matthew Carr and David Hicks, for Word After Word, a podcast on writing. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. You can also find us online at wordafterwordpodcast.com. And we're back. Animal Man 63 also had a cover price of $1.95, meaning I acquired this book again at a super-duper 87% discount. The cover of issue 63 by Brian Bolland again shows a nice pastoral scene, a small village on a nice autumn afternoon. The only weird part is the giant pufferfish floating above the town. Now, Bolland did the majority 
of the Animal Man cover art. And those images and those covers almost always had no text and were usually like these ones, containing of some strange or intentionally shocking material. The story, Tooth and Claw Part 3 Leviathan, was produced by the same creative team of Delano, Pugh, and Wood. There is a story thus far page that starts the issue, but other than them obviously surviving the crazed dolphin attack, not a lot of additional plot stuff seemed to have happened in Part 3. We start at night, with Buddy walking from the cabin down to the beach. He dives into the ocean, hoping to track the recent occurrences of strange, aggressive animal behavior to their source. He knows that something huge and long forgotten has been awakened. Something cold and very, very old. At the same time, as if in a trance, Annie Cassidy wanders up the cliff to the Indian Head ruins, hoping to find some relaxation and shelter from the violent storm outside. As she sits in the ancient stone chair within, her thoughts become those of a huge entity demanding vengeance. Back at the cabin, Ellen awakens as a bird crashes through her window in a storm of feathers, glass, and blood. Several other birds are falling to the ground, and a strong wind is threatening to tear the cabin apart. Cliff thinks it's pretty cool. The ghost of Hitchcock rides again. They hear banging on the door and find Lucy Cassidy demanding to get in. She's worried about her mom and begs the bakers to help find her. Something weird is happening, and she's out there, all alone. Back in the lake, Buddy swims deep down under the water past discarded oil barrels and other poisons until he discovers an entire sunken city. He wonders whether... Modern cities will be the same one day when humans destroy themselves and go extinct. He swims on, approaching the source from which all of the sea life in the ocean seems to be emanating. It rises towards him, an unbounded void from which an infinity of nature's wild variety streams in a silent, shining scream. In terror, he flees back towards the shore. Ellen, Lucy, Maxine, and Cliff make their way toward Indian Head, trying to avoid the falling birds and the army of fish and crustaceans pursuing them. At the top of the cliff, Lucy, Ellen, and Maxine crawl into a nearby cave for shelter, while Cliff stays outside to wait for his dad. Maxine reveals that the cave was once used by natives to commune with a big thing which she claims has already swallowed them. Deeper inside the cave, Lucy finds her mother in a catatonic state. They manage to rouse her, and she sprouts some strange proclamations. There is disease, corruption, and imbalance of creation. There is despair. The spirit of the world is hurt, and we have come to bathe the wound. We are the ocean. With us, it will all end. Lucy's cries seem to bring her mom finally out of her trance. She's not sure why they're all there. Buddy swims back towards the shore, once again consumed by the rage afflicting all the fish. 
he remembers Ellen, Cliff, and Maxine, and realizes that despite all of his animal connections, he can't deny his humanity. He rises from the surf and stands like a man. When they explain to Annie that they're being attacked by images from her paintings, she names the big thing as Leviathan. They're surprised to find that she welcomes the destruction, feeling that she's lost everything, including Lucy, her daughter, who we learn here is suffering from some type of sickness. Lucy, though, is disgusted by her mother's self-pity, not wanting to live her life in a cloud of guilt for having a terminal disease. I won't be a symbol to justify your anger, Mom. Maxine, who is always wise beyond her years, explains that Annie needs to let go of her anger, and both she and Lucy should be happy with what time they have with each other. Outside, Cliff is nearly swallowed by a tidal wave, but he's saved by his father just in the nick of time. Below them, the Leviathan begins to recede back under the waves, taking the animals with it. Buddy believes that it has either changed its mind or that this was all just a warning against mistreating nature. A warning that we're not invulnerable, that nature is red in tooth and claw. And we're not above that reach. Maybe that if we don't soon start doing things right, we're going to be all out of chances. Cliff comments that it's cool to have a superhero dad, but sometimes you're so intense, man. The next day, Buddy manages to rent a car, but the bakers are unsure of what to do about Annie and Lucy. Their home was destroyed in the storm. Cliff and Maxine reveal that they have already decided that the Cassidys will come to live with them on Grandma's farm in Vermont. As Cliff points out, sharing resources is good ecology, isn't it? And sharing resources with a girl you've got a crush on is even better ecology. Uh, Okay, he doesn't actually say that last part. But if this issue had thought bubbles, that would have been in his. The end. I know that the Grant Morrison title of this run is very well thought of, and that it was important in setting this book on the path of weirdness that it's had ever since. But I think that some of the stuff that Jamie Delano came up with is also really good and really important. He created some of the long-lasting elements of the Animal Man universe. He came up with the concept of the red, that life force that binds all animal life together, and positioning Buddy as the avatar of the red. That's sort of the equivalent position that Swamp Thing holds for plant life, for for the green. I read all of the New 52 series of Animal Man, and really enjoyed it. A lot of that run involved the red and the green, as well as the rot. And the family dynamics were very intense there, not just with Ellen, but with both of the kids. And a lot of that stuff ties right back into this era, to this run, to this volume of Animal Man. And this issue, 63, much like 61, just hits so many of the right beats I said before that I love the family dynamic, and here you have it again. Cliff waiting for his dad to return is a great moment, as is the tidal wave manner of their reunion. And Maxine, Little Wing, 
has always had a definite connection to the red that her brother doesn't. Here, she's able to communicate with the mom, with Annie. They are largely on the same wavelength. They have a connection to each other because they have a connection to the animal life around them. And then Little Wing is able to really impart some wisdom to Annie, and I love that bit. Now, spoilers for the new 52 take, but Maxine, again, plays an important role in those books and does, for a time, replace her father as an avatar of the Red. I don't know if Delano has made it clear at this point in the series that she has inherited some of Buddy's abilities, or if issues like this were hints were foreshadowings of what was to come. But she, Little Wing, Maxine, is a great character. Actually, I mean, both kids are. The whole family is. Because they're all different. They have different arcs. They all have unique relationships with the other members of the family. And that's just realistic. That's how families work. In general, I'm not always a fan of political or social messages being smuggled covertly into my entertainment. But Animal Man's messages are not covert, and they're not being smuggled in. The environmental and animal rights stuff has been there right from the start, at least in terms in in the start of this volume, now almost 30 years ago. So it's understood, if I'm going to read Animal Man, I'm going to be preached at about the issues that Buddy cares about. That should never take an Animal Man reader by surprise. I should double-check this, but I'm pretty sure this is going to be the earliest Vertigo book we cover in this Vertigo series of episodes. Vertigo line officially started in 93, and Animal Man books were branded as Vertigo starting with 57. So the ones we're looking at here, 61 and 63, are very early in the life of Vertigo. With that designation, the title really began to move Outside the greater DC universe, its ties to the DCU becoming more and more tenuous. In terms of the specifically mature content that these two issues contain, there is one panel of a woman with one exposed breast. In terms of what we think of as inappropriate content, that's it. But this is a mature book in the very real meaning of mature. And that's what I think of when I think of the best Vertigo books. This is a weird, bizarre story. Mature in its characterizations and character interactions. This is the kind of mature story I want when I read a suggested for mature audiences title. The verdict on Animal Man 61 and 63. These were really good. I'm sure I missed some character bits by not having number 62, and maybe some plot aspects too, but I didn't notice that anything was missing. It's weird, it's bizarre, living up to its Vertigo branding, and living up to what I know about Animal Man. Solid issues, a solid story, definite quarter-bin deals. That wraps up my coverage of Animal Man 61 and 63, bringing episode 93 to a close. In next episode, episode 94, hopefully I'll have a stronger voice, and we'll be looking at Madame Xanadu number one, again from the Vertigo line of DC Comics, cover dated August 
2008. If you have any questions or comments about this issue, the episode, the vertigo vortex, sinus and allergy issues, or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarter Bin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.